Psychic Self-Defense Part 2 The Scientific Method Right, so this is part 2 of Psychic Self-Defense My attempt at piecing together my thoughts on truth and bias uh, And it's also a hopeful intervention to help equip, equip you with some useful tools For making your way through the social media and traditional media that we're all inundated with uh, I suppose just for clarity, I should say, by, by traditional media, I mean uh, radio, newspapers, TV, magazines, uh, whether online or offline, mainstream media. And then by social media, I mean, of course, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and all the rest. So, as I rambled about in part one, literally everything you could ever watch, read or listen to has bias built into it. There's bias in the writer, the photographer, the videographer. Uh, the camera operator. The camera operator chooses where to point the camera. So there's bias in what they choose to even point the camera at. There's bias in the style of news writing. There's even bias in what's considered news in the first place. Take, for example, the politics section of any newspaper. So say the Irish Times, for example. Nearly every article is about the government, the EU, other nations' governments, maybe something about NGOs. But is, is that all there is to politics? Like, to my mind, politics is what happens when people organise together. What about community interest groups? Or what about lobbyists? What are lobbyists up to? What social movements are forming and developing here in Ireland? What concerns are coming out of the different communities that make up the island? You won't see much of that, because mainstream newspapers in this country have a bias towards the primacy of state and state government. That's all important to them. Social movements aren't worth noticing until they draw tens of thousands into the street. And even then, it's mostly ridicule rather than reporting. I think this podcast is probably very heavily biased in the opposite way, but I hope I'm upfront about it. I, like, I want to focus your attention on the social movements in this country, on communities standing up for themselves, uh, on the environmental movement, you know, real on-the-ground, grassroots political action. And I'm drawn towards perspectives that take the health of the whole ecosystem into consideration. And that bias I have may partly explain why I believe one coronavirus origin story and not the other. So in part one, I gave an example of a conspiracy theory that the virus was started deliberately as a biological weapon. Now, I think this is incredibly unlikely because there doesn't seem to be any solid evidence to back it up. The most plausible origin story of the virus that I've come across is essentially the mainstream narrative that it originated in a wet market in Wuhan. But that story doesn't go far enough. There's more details and greater context to how it came about that, in my opinion, don't get amplified enough in the mainstream media, so I'd like to highlight them here. And that's that there's a direct link between this new strain of coronavirus, which causes COVID-19, and deforestation, as demonstrated by scientific research and studies published over the last decade. So like I said, scientists have established this link between deforestation and not just the coronavirus, but the, the spread of what are called zoonotic diseases, diseases that originate with animals. Uh, one of many such scientists, Peter Daszak, is a zoologist and he's a member of the Eco Health Alliance and the United States National Institute for Health. And he's been studying the connections between human and wildlife health for over 10 years. And in the time he and his colleagues have discovered more than 500 strains of coronavirus in bats alone. Now, while many are quick to blame the people of Wuhan who trade in wild meat. It's important to look at this in its global context. Professor Dazak said, It's our everyday way of going about business on the planet that seems to be driving this. 
we have created a global human-dominated ecosystem that serves as a playground for the emergence and host switching of animal viruses, especially genetically error-prone RNA viruses, whose high mutation rates have for millions of years provided opportunities to switch to new hosts in new ecosystems. It took the genome of the human species 8 million years to evolve by 1%. Many animal RNA viruses can evolve by more than 1% in a matter of days. All over the world, human activity is encroaching more and more in wild habitats. Now, whether it's in the Amazon in Eastern Europe or in rural China, old growth forests are being destroyed to feed the needs of the market. Deforestation, road building, agricultural intensification and industrialization expanding suburbs, these are all patterns that are making it more likely that viruses like this will spread among human populations. I link the studies on the Turning Earth blog along with all the other resources I use for this podcast. But it's a common thread in all of them that they identify these factors as what creates the environment for viruses like this to evolve and spread. Climate scientists have also been pointing this out for decades. We've mentioned it before in this podcast as well. The global problems we're facing right now of climate change, biodiversity loss and an over-dependence on international trade and travel are all contributing to an increase in the varieties and spread of disease. Now, I've said that in the past on Turning Earth, but I don't think I ever really, like, actually appreciated what that means until now. So just like extreme weather is becoming more likely, extreme weather events are becoming more likely to be more frequent, situations like this will be more and more likely to happen if these multiple crises aren't averted. Now, like I said, this fits in with the mainstream narrative. And is there a problem with believing, with just believing the mainstream narrative? Of course there is. Because even if it's true, if we just believe it uncritically, without understanding how it's true, how we know, then we are already set up to be manipulated. Remember what Sagan said about scientific reporting. The problem with it is that more often than not, the results are and the findings are reported, but not the critical method, not the scientific method. So why do I believe this origin story? Now, no doubt my own biases make me more likely to believe it, but if I take a look at the scientific method as outlined by Sagan and apply it to the story, does it stand up to scrutiny? And if I take that same method and apply it to the biological weapon story, does it stand up? So, first of all, what's the scientific method? To try and simplify it, put it in as as concise a way as possible. The scientific method is you try to come up with an explanation for some natural phenomenon, for some thing that happens in the world. You come up with a potential explanation for it, or several potential explanations, and then you do experiments and compare the explanations to the data that you have and see which explanation stands up the best. You continuously try and disprove it. This explanation is called a hypothesis. A hypothesis is a potential explanation for some phenomenon, a proposed explanation for how something happens. A theory is what you have when a hypothesis has been tested repeatedly and stood up to the tests, proven consistent. We call it a scientific theory when it appears that no new evidence is likely to disprove it because it's been proven so many times. As Sagan said, science invites us to let the facts in even when they don't conform to our preconceptions. It counsels us to carry alternative hypotheses in our heads and see which best fits the facts. It's that combination of imagination and discipline I was talking about towards the end of part one. And you'll notice there, that's that's a key difference between a scientific theory and a conspiracy theory. A scientific theory 
is one that forms after several hypotheses have been you, you try to disprove them and you can't the, the, the hypothesis that you can't disprove even though you've tried really hard you've thrown everything you can at it you've gotten other people involved to try and disprove it and it hasn't been disproven yet so you go okay now it's a theory with a conspiracy theory that process is kind of missing someone comes up with an explanation runs with it straight away and goes well this is it and then it's very hard to convince them otherwise even if the information comes up again and again to show that it's not true so a conspiracy theory in a way is still in the hypothesis stage maybe that's one way of putting it Sagan continues every time we exercise self-criticism every time we test our ideas against the outside world we are doing science science thrives on errors cutting them away one by one false conclusions are drawn all the time but they are drawn tentatively Hypotheses are framed so they are capable of being disproved. A succession of alternative hypotheses is confronted by experiment and observation. Science gropes and staggers toward improved understanding. Chapter 12 of The Demon Haunted World is titled The Fine Art of Baloney Detection. In this chapter, Sagan elaborates on one of the central messages of the book, which is that it's better to face the truth than to face a comforting fantasy. While believing in a story, whether it's the mainstream news or a fringe conspiracy theory, even if it's disturbing, it might give us the comfort that we understand what's going on in the world. But it doesn't necessarily help us, even though we're comforted in going, okay, there's a simple explanation, there's the bad guys over there and the good guys over here, and we understand how the world works now. It's less comfortable to continue asking questions and to keep wondering and to hold sometimes conflicting truths in our minds. That's what I was talking about in part one with the WHO. Yeah, they're, you know, they're political actors, they're corrupt and all the rest, but they also are a source of valuable information. They're both those things at the same time. They're neither the bad guys nor the good guys. They're just powerful actors in the world that we need to, need to be aware of. Like we live in a world where fake dentists on the telly tell us how amazing a particular branded toothpaste is or where huge multinational companies that manufacture fizzy sugary drinks spend millions if not billions on advertising campaigns trying to trick our subconscious minds into associating their products with the state of happiness and even that seems quaint compared to the targeted advertising in all of our social media feeds even the the stories were being fed the posts that were shown of all the hundreds of posts that our facebook friends or our Instagram followers or whatever might share the ones we're shown are the result of an algorithm that is built to shape our way of thinking for us as an example of this back in 2014 Facebook deliberately manipulated the content of hundreds of thousands of users feeds in order to manipulate their emotions it was an experiment they were doing and they proved that they were able to do it and they did it by making people happy so they proved that by altering what people were shown they could deliberately make people happy now, they defended their actions by saying, look, we're just making people happy, what's the harm? But isn't that deeply worrying? Like, if they can make us happy just by exercising some control over what we see, can't they also make us sad or angry? This, exper- this experiment highlights the role that Facebook plays in our lives. It's not just a way for us to communicate with people and to get news, but the whole thing is set up to suck us in and to shape us. And it's not just Facebook, other social media as well. Sagan reminds us that the human-built world we inhabit is shaped by science and technology. So much of our lives is utterly dependent and completely intertwined with high technology. But a 
at the same time were not very well equipped to understand it all. He was writing this in 1996, but what he wrote is even more relevant today. Because now, more than ever. Because now, more than ever. Now. More than ever. Nine. More than ever. Nine. More than ever. Sorry. I'll try and avoid using that phrase from now on. Um, it, at this time in particular, we need an education in critical thinking, scientific literacy and media literacy. Uh, and that's what this, I'm hoping this podcast will be a little intervention to help people start looking down those tracks themselves. Because unfortunately, that kind of an education is still mostly limited to third-level institutions, even though it, it really is a basic life skill. I spoke at the start of part one that there's limits to what rationalism can explain and that we have to take emotion into account because emotions are also facts. Now, the act of thinking critically is profoundly rational and what I'm about to describe is a rational process, but... While rational thinking can't totally explain the situations we encounter in life, you know, it can't explain love, it can't explain the totality of our experience, we can use rational thinking as a tool to cut through the confusion and to get closer to the truth. So while, as Haidt said, we use rationalism to justify our opinions and our positions, we can also use it to dismantle the justifications used by others and to judge whether or not their opinions are based more on evidence or more on their own biases. So if you can, while listening to this, try to keep an awareness of what's going on with you on an emotional level. What feelings are coming up when you hear the things I have to say? And how are those feelings affecting what you think? Powerful emotions like wonder, uh, fear, greed, anger and grief can cloud our ability to think critically. Now, we can never totally surpass or suppress our emotions. In fact, it does us immense damage if we try to. Our emotions are there along with and intertwined with our thoughts. And on top of all that, we are daily being emotionally manipulated by the media sources and media platforms we use. And inside this whirling vortex of our own emotions and the emotions of the media creator we're interfacing with are material facts that we have to handle. There's a story to get to grips with. And what it means, to me anyway, to have a bit of cop on, is to be able to maintain an awareness of our emotions while also following the logical or illogical process of the argument or story that we're faced with. If we keep our heads clear, we can see when words or images are being used to manipulate or mislead. If we maintain a rational focus through the chaos of emotion, we can spot flaws in the reasoning and avoid being fooled. This focus will also allow us to listen to our own emotions, because emotions can also be a guide. If something is making us angry, we can ask why. Maybe it's because we feel like we're being lied to. That feeling doesn't come from nowhere. So we can follow our guts here as well. Remember Sagan's words, at the heart of science is an essential balance between an openness to new ideas and the most ruthlessly sceptical scrutiny of all ideas, old and new. Try to keep that balance within yourself while you listen here. In his baloney detection kit, uh, do you know what I'm going to have to st- <laughs> the word baloney doesn't sound right coming out of my mouth that's like I'm not like Sagan was from New York I think so I like I, I'm going to have to baloney basically just means nonsense doesn't it it's like American slang for nonsense so I'm, I'm going to call it his nonsense detection kit I hope that's okay so in his nonsense detection kit he lists some tools for sceptical thinking tools for disassembling and analysing the arguments or stories we're faced with 
Now I'm going to share some of these tools with you now and apply them to the, to the two origin stories of the virus. Number one, that it originated in the wild. And number two, that it originated in a lab and see which one stacks up the best. Wherever possible, there must be independent confirmation of the facts. Encourage substantive debate on the evidence by knowledgeable proponents of all points of view. There two of his nonsense detection principles, shall we call them. Now, I've already talked a bit about the hypothesis that it came from the wild, and there's a number of papers to support this dating as far back as 2006, because the current coronavirus, which gives people COVID-19, is just one of many. SARS was a coronavirus. You remember the SARS outbreak in 2003. Uh, there was also MERS then, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, a few years after that. So scientists in the USA, China, Australia and other places have been examining coronavirus since that SARS outbreak back in 2003, uh, testing them in various conditions on human tissue and on lab animals. And they've determined that bats carry a wide variety of coronaviruses. Bats are the second most genetically and species diverse order of mammals, the first being rodents. And it's this genetic diversity that leads to the abundance of viruses and their propensity for mutation. What all the studies point to is that there seems to be a connection between biodiversity and virus diversity, which makes sense. This explains why so many viral hotspots are near the equator in tropical regions, because the closer you get to the equator, the greater biodiversity you see. This gives the virus opportunities to move between species, and since they evolve much faster than animals do, this can happen in a very short space of time. Studies showed that the virus contains genetic material that is shared by viruses that pass between bats. Here's a quote from one now, I don't know if you'll understand it, I barely do. RNA sequences closely resemble those of viruses that silently circulate in bats, and epidemiological information implicates a bat origin virus infecting unidentified animal species sold in China's live animal markets. Epidemiologic information, like an epidemiological link, an epidemic, you know what an epidemic is, it's a sudden outbreak of a disease. So an epidemiological link or epidemiologic information is information about how it spreads and who it spreads between or what living creatures it spreads between, basically. I just thought I should explain that because that word's probably going to come up a lot. Now, SARS, an earlier coronavirus, was spread from bats to other animals by insects. SARS-CoV-2, which is the one we're dealing with now, is the seventh coronavirus known to infect humans. There was SARS-CoV, which was the original SARS outbreak, MERS-CoV, and SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, can cause severe disease, whereas HKU1, NL63, OC43 and 229E, catchy names, are all associated with mild symptoms, including causing the common cold. But they're all still coronaviruses. They're all this family of viruses. But they're different mutations, different species, if you like. I don't know if species isn't the right term. They're different strains of the virus. A big difference between them is, other than the severity of the sickness that they cause, because like I said, four mild ones are associated with the common cold and then there's the three severe ones that cause severe respiratory sickness, is that those four mild ones are only carried by humans, whereas SARS-CoV-2 shares 90% of its genetic material with viruses that are carried by bats. Researchers found that the virus is covered in spike proteins that allow it to bind to humans and other animals. And the complexity of their structure and the genetic variation contained within suggests that it is most likely the result of natural selection rather than deliberate manipulation. In other words, it's unlikely that humans have the ability to create something like this. Now this by itself isn't enough to explain how the coronavirus reaches humans. And many of the studies highlighted the same reasons I've already mentioned. So increased urbanisation, expansion of road networks, increased international travel, 
farming, modernization, habitat destruction, deforestation, human encroachment, encroachment, climate change. Human industrial civilization is expanding continuously and eating into the last of the world's wild biodiverse habitats. Most human infectious diseases originate with other animals, the majority of them being wildlife. Since the 1980s, 65% of newly discovered pathogens have been zoonotic, meaning they came from other animals. The most common sources are rodents, accounting for about 58% of them, followed by primates and bats, which happen to be the three most diverse orders of mammals. Not a coincidence. Some examples of zoonotic outbreaks over the last half century include SARS and MERS, which are coronaviruses from bats, H5N1 and H7N9, two forms of avian flu, uh, bird flu, the swine flu, HIV, which originated in primates because they were hunted for bushmeat and then consumed by people and then spread rapidly amongst the human population. Um, uh, it was a, it's a sexually transmitted disease, as I'm sure you know, uh, and it expanded so rapidly at this point because of expanding trucking networks. That's where the initial outbreak was associated with. You've got the uh, arena viruses in Bolivia and Argentina, which are hemorrhagic fevers, fevers that make you bleed, really horrific. Uh, they originated with rodents. Uh, they're associated with agricultural practices. And again, they were spread because of expanding road networks, which led to increased rodent migration. Uh, the Nipah virus in Southeast Asia, another one originating from bats, and spread through humans because of uh, intensification in, of pig farming in bat-rich areas. And then the human monkeypox, which spread in the USA because of the illegal wildlife trade. And finally, I'm sure there's more, but this is all I've got on my list now, is the chikungunya virus and the Zika virus, which are both expanding globally now uh, as local climates become warmer. And the uh, this particular species of mosquito that spreads those viruses uh, their habitat is expanding. So while a lot of that is circumstantial evidence, the fact that loads of other viruses of, and ones of a similar kind have come from animals before, there's strong evidence there in that, like I said, 90% of the genetic material is shared with other coronaviruses that pass between bats. And like I said, the structure of it is so complex that the notion of human interference just seems incredibly unlikely. But what sources were there for the notion that it originated in a lab? A story circulated far and wide online of a Chinese scientist who had gone rogue and tried to stop a deal that the Chinese government were making to sell the coronavirus, which is a lab-engineered bioweapon, to the US. The struggle to prevent the deal resulted in the virus being released accidentally. Where did this story come from? This story that was repeated by mainstream tabloids, YouTubers and bloggers to millions of people. Batman. Great headline. Uh, the COVID files, uh, two Chinese scientists who... Was the Wuhan coronavirus predicted in a 1981 SF novel? I don't know. And China David is not Rockefeller the kind of country that would... And what gives you a high degree of confidence that this originated from the Wuhan Institute of Virology? I can't tell you that. I'm not allowed to tell you that. It came from the website Reddit. The subreddit r slash no sleep, where people post horror sci-fi and pretend that it's real. For fun. The rules of the subreddit, subreddit is kind of like a forum basically, like a message board. The rules of the subreddit are that you have to act as though the stories are real and talk about them as though they're real. For fun. It's like fantasy, sci-fi, horror, roleplay. The problems arise when people who aren't familiar with the forum and how it works get the wrong end of the stick and mistake it for real life. Here's a headline for you. Coronavirus. Biological weapon entered US after Wuhan lab scientist defected. What a startling headline. What's the proof? A novel written in 1981 by Dean Kuntz 
the Eye of Darkness, in which a virus called Wuhan 400 is deliberately manufactured by the Chinese. So you might be starting to see the crux of the problem here, which is reporting. Sensational tabloid headlines using phrases like coronavirus horror, etc. Usually followed by an article that is actually a lot more nuanced than the title would lead you to believe. But that's really irresponsible when most people, a lot of people anyway, only read the headlines and go, Jesus Christ. Um, uh, the term we use, I suppose, is clickbait, but it applies to just traditional media as well, tabloid headlines, like I said. Here's another example. Uh, I've got an article that from the Washington Times. The title is Coronavirus Link to China Biowarfare Program Possible. Now, a note below in the article says that that isn't true. But that barely matters when the title says something so sensationalist. And again, a lot of people just skim by the headlines. And that can be enough to fix an idea in someone's head. Uh, you'll notice there's an immense difference in language there between how it's discussed in the media and how scientists talk about it. So how it's reported is very sensational, emotive and scary, and then the scientists discuss it in a calm, detached and reserved way. Unfortunately, that just seems to be a lot less convincing to people. But which source sounds more reliable to you? If you needed to fix your car's engine, would you consult Tom Newton's How Cars Work, an illustrated guide to car parts? Or would you watch Disney Pixar's 2006 hit animation, Cars? What you really need is the sweet taste of my homemade organic fuel. <laughs> no, doesn't agree with my tank. Which do you think would give you the knowledge required to repair your vehicle? Now, apply that logic to the COVID-19 origin story. Hang on a minute though. Am I being detached and impartial here? Or am I letting my confirmation bias guide me? Confirmation bias means the tendency we have to look for evidence that supports our point of view, but semi-consciously avoid seeking any evidence that supports the opposing point of view. And now, in fairness, a lot of the stuff I found in support of the bioweapon story did reference that stuff I was just talking about, like literal works of fiction. But surely there must be more credible information out there to support this story. Uh, I want to try my best to be fair, so I have to keep looking. This leads me on to the next of Carl Sagan's nonsense detection tools. Spin more than one hypothesis. If there's something to be explained, think of all the different ways in which it could be explained. Then think of tests by which you might systematically disprove each of the alternatives. What survives? The hypothesis that resists this proof in this Darwinian selection among multiple working hypotheses has a much better chance of being the right answer than if you simply run with the first idea that caught your fancy. Try not to get overly attached to hypothesis just because it's yours. It's only a way station in the pursuit of knowledge. Ask yourself why you like the idea. Compare it fairly with the alternatives. See if you can find reasons for rejecting it. If you don't, others will. Now I really like that description, it's just a way station in the pursuit of knowledge. Remember what I covered earlier, before something becomes a scientific theory, it has to first be, hypo be a hypothesis that you try to disprove over and over again, and only if it seems to be proven true repeatedly can you call it a theory. These two are very important, these two principles, because it's common that people tend to believe the first thing they hear if it fits in, their, with, if it fits in with their worldview, and then it's very difficult to convince them otherwise even if it's been proven by knowledgeable people that their view isn't true. 
The most credible article I could find suggesting that it was a bioweapon was from an, a website of an American Organic Food Association. And again, I'll share the link to this along with all the other sources in the blog. My first impressions of the article inspired some trust in me. It was from uh, an excerpt from a podcast interview. I also listened to the podcast where the interviewer was a doctor and the interviewee was this fellow Francis Boyle, a professor of law and former advisor at the Council for Responsible Genetics. And he'd been involved in drafting legislation in the US on biological weapons. And he was a human rights lawyer in the past, advocating for Palestinian and Native American rights. So that gave him bonus points in my eyes, which, again, is my own bias coming into play. This fellow seems trustworthy to me. The article also contained many footnotes and references, referencing scientific studies. So I thought, well, maybe there's something to this bioweapons story. Let's read on. Professor Francis Boyle made a number of startling claims. He began by talking about the BSL-4 lab in Wuhan. BSL stands for biosafety level, and a BSL-4 lab is the highest level of safety for a lab like this. They're used to contain any biological agent that has the potential to cause harm and is highly contagious. It's in labs like these that scientists perform experiments to learn about viruses and things like that. So, Here, in reference to a lab run by Monsanto in the US where they're studying Ebola, Boyle claims that BSL-4 labs are only used for biological warfare agents and nothing else. He said he knows of no other legitimate scientific reason for BSL-4 to exist. That's scary stuff. I didn't know that about BSL-4 labs. I knew there was one in Wuhan and that the coronaviruses were indeed being studied there. A lot of the studies I read were based on experiments carried out in those kinds of labs. He went on to say that Shi Zheng Li, one of the researchers from the Wuhan BSN-4 lab, had previously done work on weaponizing the SARS virus and that this research had been published. Now that was really worrying because I'd seen her name on more than one of the papers which I'd previously read. He said also that Australian scientists had engineered HIV into SARS, which is what has given us the current coronavirus. He then mentioned a paper that shows that patient zero, the first registered case, had no epidemiological links to the other patients, as in he'd never been near the market, had no contact with the other ones, and also that one third of all patients had no links to the market. Then the final nail in the coffin. After referencing that HIV and SARS had been combined, he continues, it seems to me that they took that back to the Wuhan BSL-4 and applied nanotechnology to it. The size of the molecules are maybe 120 microns, which indicates to me that we are dealing with nanotechnology. Now, this caused me to pause for a second. I had to read and reread this section a few times and then listen to the podcast again, that section of the podcast. He kept just saying there's nanotechnology involved. But at this point, the chain of arguments started to get a little messy. Things were becoming less clear. He made no claim to support the notion of nanotechnology. He was making lots of jumps between ideas with no links between them and no solid evidence backing any of the claims up. He was just he was just saying stuff. So first I did a quick search on the size of nanotechnology. Now I know anyone who knows anything about nanotechnology will probably be laughing at me at this stage. Like I literally typed in how big is nanotechnology. Um, I eventually figured out how to refine that question a bit better. But he, he said that the size of molecules were, were 120 microns. Therefore nanotechnology is involved. Now... I eventually learned that nanotechnology describes any product in the range of 1 to 100 nanometers. 1 nanometer is equal to 0.001 microns. That means that 120 microns, the size of this mysterious molecule that the good doctor was worried about, is equal to 120,000 nanometers, which is 1,200 times bigger than the larger end of nanotechnological products. 
And then it hit me, it's not actually clear what molecules he's talking about when he says 120 microns. He just starts talking about molecules without any context. So I pulled up all the articles that they referenced and I did a quick search through them. And none of them say anything about a molecule that's 120 microns in size. This reminded me of another of Sagan's nonsense detection tools. If there's a chain of argument, every link in the chain must work, including the premise, not just most of them. Take this segment for example. What's more, there were no bats sold in or even close to the market. At least one third of the patients reviewed also had no exposure or links to that market. This data supports the counter hypothesis that SARS-CoV-2 was not zoonotically transmitted but is in fact an engineered virus. Now, there's a lot of problems with that statement, but the biggest one is the leap he makes at the end. That data may support, in certain conditions, that it was not zoonotically transmitted, but there's nothing in that data to suggest that it was engineered. And if you add to that data, the data about how the virus moves from bats to other animals via small insects, then it's not necessarily important that there were no bats sold in the market. I'll address the numbers thing in a moment. They also frequently talk about the gain of function properties it has, which to them, just by virtue of the language, means that it has been tampered with. What's important to understand about the term gain of function is that it means simply that there's an aspect to one strain of the virus that it does not share with other strains. This can happen through mutation, but it can also happen through genetic engineering. Scientists do carry out gain of function experiments in order to find out how viruses mutate. They set conditions so that the virus will mutate and potentially gain a function, but more often than not they lose a function. But this is the nature of scientific experiment. When an experiment fails, it teaches you as much as if it would have succeeded. But basically, this is where the fear and confusion can take hold. If there's a branch of experiments called gain-of-function experiments, and this strain, COVID-19, has gain-of-function properties, then it must be engineered, right? No. The science is very clear that this happens through mutation in nature also and is much more likely to. The purpose of the lab experiments of the same name is to see how it happens in nature. Now, it's important to note at this point that there has been extensive debate in the scientific community among virologists and epidemiologists about the value of gain-of-function experiments. Are they worth the risk? Researchers have in the past genetically altered other strains of coronavirus that make them more likely to spread to humans in lab conditions. This research was carried out in the States though, not in China and the US government in 2014 put a moratorium on such experiments uh, while experts debated and tried to work out if it was worth the risk. Now the moratorium was lifted in 2017. Uh, the conclusion was that while these experiments do carry some risk, they're also valuable for predicting what kind of strain will evolve next, how they evolve, what we can do to be ready for them, etc. and start developing vaccines ahead of time. So you can see there where conspiratorial thinking starts to creep in. Like it's not it's not actually completely outlandish that this could be genetically engineered, that it could have originated a lab or that it could have escaped from a lab. But as I'll get to in a moment, the numbers just don't stack up and it's just it, all the evidence points to it being much more likely that it came from nature. One of the more frightening claims was made by the interviewer that Xi Zhengli published a paper in 2010 about weaponizing SARS. Now I've searched for this paper using Google, looking through all the journals, the scientific journals that I frequently check, ResearchGate and everything else. And she published a lot of papers in 2010, but not one of them mentions weaponizing SARS. They're all examining bats, most of them looking at how coronaviruses like SARS work. The paper they reference in the article that they actually linked to when they're making this claim was one of the many she worked on demonstrating that cat, that bats, sorry, not cats, carry SARS and that the genetic diversity of the species means they may carry many more. The professor, Boyle, 
claims that SARS was a biological weapon to begin with, but they also claim that Xi Zhengli was weaponizing SARS. Which is it? As soon as I started to view this article with any critical thought, the whole thing just disassembled before my eyes. Most of the references linked in the article either didn't say what Boyle and his interviewer said they did, or they said the complete opposite. The one paper that did actually back up their claim was one that was withdrawn by the authors because it hadn't passed the peer review process due to a lack of scientific and academic rigour. This was the paper that hypothesised that HIV had been added to the coronavirus. Essentially what happened here is that the researchers examined examples of COVID's genetic code and found similarities with HIV and drew the conclusion that it must have been engineered into it. Now the problem with the method is that the examples of code they took were so small that they could have applied to almost any other living thing. Strings of genetic code are unimaginably long, so when you focus on only one small aspect of it, it applies to everything. You have to look at very long excerpts of the code before it becomes specific to a particular organism. So, the science was flawed, and the paper was withdrawn. A major red flag in this article, which it took me a while to cop onto, was the tone of language used. It was all very certain, very urgent, inflammatory, and frightening. Scientific language isn't like that. It's cautious, detached, open. Remember, science points us towards potential explanations, tentatively. In some ways, this can be a problem in itself, for example, with climate change. Scientists have always been very careful about how they communicate about it, which in many ways is why we're only starting to take it seriously on a large scale now. Well, that and the billion-dollar propaganda campaigns that oil and gas companies have waged against it. Even now, if a climate scientist speaks too urgently about it, they're called alarmist. So even with that in mind, when we're reading something making accusations or startling claims, it's worth keeping an eye on the language used and really following the claims back to the sources before we form an opinion based on it. Overall, this article, to quote Sagan again, was wants to use the language and credibility of science, but without being bound by its method and rules. Scientific credibility is the consequence of the method. Without the method, there is no real credibility. But, as he also pointed out, in a world where most people don't get the benefit of a holistic scientific education, most of us are easily won over by the use of language. And some people are very good at using language to disguise the fact that they don't have any evidence to back up what they're saying. Quantify. If whatever it is you're explaining has some measure, some numerical quantity attached to it, you'll be much better able to discriminate among competing hypotheses. What is vague and qualitative is open to many explanations. Of course, there are truths to be sought in many qualitative issues we are obliged to confront, but finding them is more challenging. Remember the point that Boyle and Mercola brought up about patient zero having no links to the market, therefore it couldn't have started there. The main problem with that point is that just because patient zero was the first registered case of the virus doesn't mean they were the first person to get it. They could easily have come into close contact with someone in public who was at the market and not have realised it, sat near them on public transport for example. In the same paragraph, they say one third of the patients also had no links to the market, therefore it's suspect. But that leaves two thirds of the patients that did have contact. So even still the numbers stack in favour of it coming from the meat market. For years before the current outbreak, scientists had been studying coronaviruses in the region. And based on their research in that time, they estimate that 10% of the millions of bats in the region carry coronaviruses of varying different strains. Of the human population that they studied, 3% of them had virus antibodies for different coronaviruses. 
That amounts to millions of people. This is all before the COVID-19 outbreak that started earlier this year. So there's several million of a mostly rural population living in close contact with the east ecosystem they're embedded with. Between one and seven million of them are contracting viruses each year, bat-borne viruses. Tens of thousands of those people are involved directly in the wildlife trade, bringing themselves and the wildlife to densely populated cities. There are so many opportunities in that web of interactions for a virus to spread to the wider human population. So which sounds more likely? That, or that it came through one of the maybe dozen or so people that work in a high security lab where viruses are studied? Moving away from the origin story for a second, a lot of arguments that are still coming up online claim that it's no worse than the flu, or even that the flu is worse than the coronavirus. This is an example of an argument that you can use pure numbers for. There's no real need to get qualitative here, assuming the data has all been entered correctly. According to the HSE and the Central Statistics Office here in Ireland, the flu is responsible for between 200 and 500 deaths each year in Ireland, although it has been as high as 1,000 in really bad seasons, but that's very rare. The coronavirus, on the other hand, has killed nearly 2,000 people already, and it's only been around for six months. Do we go into lockdown every time there's a flu outbreak? No, life continues as normal. So imagine, imagine how many more deaths there would have been if there was no lockdown and no containment measures. Probably a lot more. And imagine how much less deaths there'd be of the flu if we did go into lockdown in flu season. I'm not suggesting we should do that. I'm just making the point that even though in flu season we don't take any measures against it, there's a vaccine there, most people don't get the vaccine for the flu, there's still only between 200 and 500 deaths, or in extreme cases, 1,000. Whereas in this situation with the coronavirus, where there's all sorts of public health measures to slow it down, it's still nearly at 2,000. So that's, that's orders of magnitude more deadly than the flu. And if you look over the Atlantic to the US, we get a similar story. The seasonal flu death rate, how many infected people die, according to the US uh, Centre for Disease Control, is 0.1%. The death rate of COVID-19 is not yet established, but based on the current information, it stands at 6%. That makes it 60 times more deadly than the flu. However, the CDC also estimates that potentially as few as 1 in 12 cases of the virus are actually being reported to hospitals. So if that's true, then that would bring the death rate down to 0.6%, which is still 6 times more deadly than the flu. But that's just speculation at this point. Either way, it's a lot worse than the flu, even if you take the most optimistic outlook. Johns Hopkins University research puts COVID at 760,000 deaths worldwide, whereas the flu is between 290,000 and 650,000 deaths each year. So even at its absolute worst, the flu is not nearly as deadly as the coronavirus. While we're talking about statistics, we need to bear in mind that 32% of all cases in Ireland are healthcare workers. According to the ICN, which is the International Council of Nurses. Nowhere else in the world has as high an infection rate among healthcare professionals as Ireland does. There's clearly something deeply wrong here. I'll talk a bit more about this in part five. I should try to wrap this up now. So those few principles I just went through were developed over a long time to guide the scientific exploration of of a particular subject, of any subject. But as Sagan said, in our human society, in our daily lives, based as they are on technology and science, we need to understand this method if we're going to make sense of our surroundings. 
If we keep them in mind when reading any science news, or even news that relies on scientific information, like so much of the corona stuff does, we can better judge if what we're reading is nonsense or sense. Now, to be totally honest, when I started looking into this theory, I assumed all I was going to find was nonsense, and I was surprised to come across some stuff that lent a bit of plausibility to the bioweapon story. It's all circumstantial, and none of it could be considered proof that it's true, but it is proof that it's possible. In other words, it's not completely impossible, batshit crazy, that it's true. It's just extremely unlikely. Sagan said, Science by itself cannot advocate courses of action. It can illuminate possible consequences. If a majority of scientists in the relevant field agree on the possible outcomes of a certain scenario, for example, the increase of carbon in the atmosphere leading to an increase in global average temperature and consequent destabilisation of weather systems, or the spread of a new virus across the globe, potentially overwhelming local me- medical infrastructure and killing a great number of people, it'd be wise to take heed. At the same time, we would do well to be wary of individuals who push a particular view or course of action too heavily when it's in contradiction to what their colleagues are saying. I'm not saying we should ridicule them and dismiss them outright, because they might be right, but if they are, the evidence will support them and others will eventually come around. If the evidence doesn't support them, well... Right, fair enough. Maybe it's possible that the pandemic isn't as big a deal as the state and media are making it out to be. Maybe wearing masks doesn't help and maybe vaccines are bad for us. Anyone who holds those opinions are absolutely free to live their lives as though those things are true. But if we look at past pandemics and what the scientific research has revealed, we see that the most likely result of those actions, refusing to wear a mask, refusing to vaccinate, is that people are going to die unnecessarily. Now I can't say with absolute preternatural certainty that that will happen, but if we listen to the predictions of scientists and look at the evidence rationally, then that stands out as the most likely outcome. Lots of preventable death. Personally I'm not willing to take that risk when the odds are stacked so greatly in favour of one particular outcome. So that's it for part two, the scientific method. Um, the main thing I want to say to close this one off is that I'm not a scientist. So if there's anyone listening who works in any of the, the fields of science that I just blundered my way through, um, feel free to get in touch if I said anything totally backwards. Uh, if I got the wrong end of the stick with something, like I said, I read an awful lot. In, prepar- in preparation for this but I'm not trained in any of these fields so there's stuff that I easily could miss or words I could misunderstand because often a word will have a very specific meaning in, a, in one scientific discipline and could mean something slightly different than another and the little differences are actually are actually huge differences uh, so yeah it's important that I get corrected if I said Anthony Arsways there so I'll wrap it up now. Uh, thanks a million to Gareth, who, as usual, draws all the imagery for the podcast. And thanks to my pals, who I roped into proof listening um, to put my mind at ease. And uh, thanks loads to Glue Shock, too, as you know, pay for the hosting of this podcast. Uh, 
so once again I'm going to pass the hat around if you can spare a few bob to support Turner and Earth to support independent media uh, any amount will go a long way uh, many many hours of work goes into each of these episodes and anyone myself and anyone else who works on it give we all give our time for, for the love of it um, so please give us whatever support you can if you would like to subscribe you can do that at patreon.com forward slash turn and earth or if you want to make a one time donation you can do that at coffee.com forward slash turning earth which is ko-fi.com forward slash turning earth if you enjoyed this please leave a review on iTunes and please spread the word tell someone who you think would like it or better yet tell someone who you think might not like it um, and lastly if you do want to get in touch for any reason give me a shout at turningearthradio at gmail.com uh, or if you want to read some of the studies I referenced in this episode you can find them on the blog which is turningearth.home.blog right so that's all talk to you next week <laughs>